2: Of our tribe.
3: Greetings, ambiguous wolf.
2: I've climbed to the top of this mesa where you sit to ask you a great question. Butte. I beg pardon?
3: It's technically a butte. Everybody gets this wrong. A mesa would be bigger. A butte is a small, flat elevation carved by the wind and rain from what used to be the mesa.
2: Then what's a plateau?
3: That's like when you're still dieting, but you're not losing weight anymore.
2: Well, you are the wisest of our tribe.
3: What is your question, Ambiguous Wolf?
2: Well, I don't feel exactly like a woman or like a man.
3: That is the beauty of our tribal culture, little one. We see the two sexes as an evil creation of the white man. For millennia, we have known that other sexes exist.
2: Well, for example, I like the Three Stooges, but I also like Ryan Reynolds' rom-coms. I love... Ryan Reynolds. Especially, definitely, maybe. I totally cried at the end when it turns out he's still in love with Isla Fisher. I mean, mainly, it's just really good storytelling, and I have a lot of respect for that. And oh my god, Isla Fisher is smoking hot. I would totally tap that, bruh.
3: All of what you say is understood and permitted, child, so you may go back
2: to... But sometimes I just like to hang around all day in my sweats, you know, maybe watch an NFL game or some MMA, but turn down the volume and put on a Josh Groban CD, or Los Lonely Voice, you know. But if it's raining, I might just read a Nicholas Sparks novel and you know, listen to ZZ Top the other day. Don't tell anybody this. It was Sunday and I made this Martha Stewart fudgy ice cream cake and I ate almost the whole thing and then I'm like, whoa dude, I'm supposed to meet my frat brothers and burgers at the sports bar, so I gotta No, there's
3: quite a line of people coming up the butte for my council. Basically, you're good. You're fine.
2: I'm so sorry, I really went on, didn't I? Sorry. Do I apologize too much? Because I can also totally hold my feelings in just pressing The exit
3: is over there.
2: Today on the show, we compare the way different cultures look at the third gender question. And now he'll announce his new gender tonight on Hell's Kitchen, Colin McEnroe. Yeah,
4: actually, it's leaked out on social media a little bit. So we are going to talk about sort of what is often called... First of all, I should say that we are going to right away plunge into a thicket of terminology. There's just sort of a lot of words for what amounts to one gigantic question mark, which is how do we talk about gender and does it make sense to talk about it uh, as exclusively in dualistic dimorphic terms as we typically do? Um, And I think as this society changes and evolves, and I think within the last 10 years, we've really seen a lot of change on that question. What's interesting and what you may not know, what you may learn today is – that this isn't an especially modern question. I mean, it's really been around for a long time, and there are cultures in which that notion of third gender, fourth gender uh, has have been embedded, embedded for a really long time. And in fact, humorous introduction notwithstanding, Native American cultures are a great example of this. It's just kind of all over the place, and from tribe to tribe to tribe, they have different, differently nuanced ways of looking at that. Uh, what does it mean to be exploring uh, third gender or maybe fourth gender questions? We've got a great lineup of ge- guests here, let me just tell you uh, about them. In just a minute, you're going to meet uh, Dr. Stephanie Budge. She's a visiting assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin Madison, a licensed psychologist who's researching uh, a lot on transgender issues. Right in the studio with me, we have Dr. Joe Wenke, who is an LGBTQI activist, social critic, and author whose latest book is The Human Agenda Conversations about Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. Also with us, Giselle Alicia, sometimes known on stage as Giselle Extravaganza, uh, a transgender fashion model, who has also acted in movies like The Extra Man. So, Dr. Joe Wenke, I'm going to begin with you. I don't want to get too bogged down in terminology, but there's a lot of terminology. There's there really there's the Q that means questioning. There's the I that can mean intersex. There's transgender. There's transsexual. There's I'm leaving some out right now. Is, is there a pretty easy way to lay all this stuff out, or is it just so specific from person to person?
1: Yeah. What I was trying to do in the book was to say, really, it's simple. We're all human beings. Mm-hmm. And I know we get into the alphabet soup of... LGBTQI, and there's even an A for asexual mm-hmm. or allies We, did, we did that show. We did the asexual Yeah, we could do that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the whole point of my book was to just really have conversations with people, to have them just sort of tell their stories, share their passions, their dreams, uh, what they want to accomplish in life, and to come out with some sort of common ground and or that be the best way to communicate on these very complicated issues. But to your point, and, uh, you know, we've been traveling around the country, too, or just in Seattle um, with Aidan Key, who's in the book, who is is a transgender man who works with transgender children or families. When you talk about gender identity, you get a blank stare most of the time. People don't understand it. The irony to me is that it's obvious. It's like Poe's purloined letter that's hiding in plain sight. It's not just transgender people who have a transgender, who have a gender identity. We all do. And it's just how we experience gender and how we communicate it. It's really that simple. And if you look at all the different kinds of men and women, it becomes kind of obvious. But to your point earlier, we don't tend to look at it that way. Everybody's bucketed. You're a man, you're a woman, and you're supposed to behave in certain ways. And if you don't, then you may get negative reactions and negative feedback.
4: Giselle, there are times in your life probably where you have to uh, – Fill in a box, check a box or something you know you're a Department of Motor Vehicles or something, and it asks what your sex is, what your gender is. first of all, is that a moment you would simply rather not ever have to experience, or do you have an answer to that question?
5: Well, to me i it doesn't bother me because I always check the female box you know that's what I actually would like to do. I personally would not want a transgendered box, but that's not for me to say that 's just my own personal. Uh, you know, what, what I would want. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, actually it doesn't bother me. No. Well,
4: would would you want there to be no box at all? In other words, and I don't mean just at the department of motor vehicles, but I mean, do you think we'd be living in a better world if in fact male and female weren't particularly operative terms, or do you really like, um, identifying as, as a female so much that you'd hate to hear the term go away?
5: Well, I don't want to hear the term go away, but, you know, I think we probably would be able to live in a better world without the boxes. You know, that way no one can really discriminate against you for being male or female. But I, I, as I said, I don't have an issue with checking the box, but Mm. I always check female. But there is a problem with the passport situation because they actually don't allow you to check female unless you have a gender reassignment surgery. And that to me is really... A problem because I want my passport to say female
4: okay I, okay now I have to ask a, a question that I um, how, how would this ever come up? In other words, if I were a uh, gate agent or TSI person or whatever uh, and you came walking up and you look like a woman to me, I wouldn't even occur to me that if it said if you said woman on your passport I mean how, why did how does this ever become a problem?
5: Well, it becomes a problem because, you know, people, exactly that, um, you go up to the TSA agents or, or whoever is handling your passport, they see you, they, they act surprised or they're shocked, depending on, you know, wh- whatever, you're prese- what, whatever uh, gender you're presenting. So I think that is an issue that makes me particularly uncomfortable mm-hmm. um, at the airport.
4: I mean, if, I, if you gave me your passport and it said male and I was the TSA agent, (laughs) then then I was going to say what's going on here. But it seems to me, why can't you just check it as female? In other words, who's going to – is it because there's sort of a paper trail of you as a man going back to your birth certificate? Is that why it can't say female on your passport?
5: I, I, that's what I'm guessing but um I have no idea because my state ID at the state office at the DMV in New York City they were able to to uh put female and the guy just asked me I don't know if he was being nice or if that was just you know the law or whatever but he did ask me what I prefer uh for him to put me down as because it was it said male so he said I'm sure you don't want to be put down as male because he looked at me and he said so you know what we're going to put you down as female but I did go to the passport uh place and they denied me to check female.
4: Um, Dr. Joe Winkie, am I taking us down a blind alley uh, in just getting too bogged down in how the bureaucracy identifies anybody on a passport or a driver's license? Or is that an important question to so many of the people that you've talked to? Uh,
1: It's an important question because it's just one of the things that reflects discrimination. Why can't we identify... The way that we experience ourselves, right? I mean, there was a story in the news about a year ago. Maybe you saw this. It was like in North Carolina, South Carolina, and a uh, teenage—I will say—boy was still identifying as boy. Showed up at motor vehicle with makeup on and was not given a license because he was told he was in disguise. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly encountering these buckets and these decisions. So, So, for example. I'm sort of identifying as androgynous, and about six months ago, Midtown Manhattan, I'm standing in the line at Starbucks, 10 feet away, and the person behind the counter says, you're next, ma'am, and I walk up to the catch rest- register and without skipping a beat then says, what would you like, sir? Mm-hmm. So there's this sir and madam thing going on. You had all, a 50% the chance of being right. That, that is correct. Yeah. But, you know, I really look at it as uh, it's all on a spectrum, and we just have these two simplistic words to identify people, and it... I think it would be better if the whole thing were blown up.
4: In, you know, uh, we're we don't we're not having anybody on the show today making the opposite case. Uh, and I'm trying to think how I would make the opposite case if I wanted to play devil's advocate here. I guess the opposite case I would make is that ultimately we have to uh, – the society has some kind of compelling interest, kind of understanding who people are, what their functions are, what kinds of benefits they might be eligible to uh, for based on, on uh, their gender or sex. Although the more I talk, the more I think (laughs) there really is no compelling reason, is there?
1: Here's the point: Uh, statements of identity are self-validating. Nobody has the moral or legal standing to say you're not who you say you are. And I forget whether Andrew Solomon said this when I was talking to him or I did. But there's this phrase: the tautology of identity. Right? We are who we say we are, and you know that should be accepted. But it is not in so many uh, situations in life.
4: so, Giselle, just kind of sketch out your story for us. What, what, what has your journey been in this way? Um, well, my journey
5: started at the age of 15. Uh, when I came out uh, of the closet to my mother, I, I started going down, downtown where there were other people like me. So I went to a center and uh, uh, found a support, uh, a support group, Um, which was the Harvey Milk School, the Hedrick-Martin Institute. And I started uh, going there, and then that's where I started my journey at the age of 15. And and I came out to my mother before I went. When
4: you say came out, did you come out as a gay boy or man? or As opposed to somebody who was going to be transgendered?
5: I came out as a gay male to my mother. And I I told my mother that I was gay, not transgender. Transgender came uh, two years after I came out of the closet as a gay boy.
4: Mm-hmm. and and I don't know is is there a way that you could describe the 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 stirrings of that revelation? in other words, you know maybe you knew for quite a few years that you that you at least thought of yourself as gay. You could look around and see maybe other gay people see the notion of homosexuality and what that meant, but then two years later you're thinking something else what's the something else that you're thinking
5: um well, the something else was when I actually witnessed that there was transgender uh people in existence I didn't know that mm-hmm. and uh, when I was a child I, I realized that I was uh, different because I was just attracted to boys I was attracted to girls too as a child I was attracted to uh, to, to, to to little girls but I think the boy uh, attraction just overwhelmed the girl attraction and I just became completely into men and I felt like an outcast because no one around me was talking about you know boys liking boys everything was uh, you have to like girls and so I was very confused and I my first transgender experience that I believe that I had was was as a child because I used to play house with my cousin and I used to be the mother and he used to be the father and I used to dress up in like my mom's heels and wear uh, lipstick so I did have the transgender I had transgender feelings as a child
4: um and and if it's none of my business really but you're here on the radio show so who are you attracted you now we I should say it's too bad this is radio you're very beautiful you're a model i would hire you to be a model but who are you attracted to men still
5: yes i'm very attracted to men still yes
4: um and so Um, I mean, that's what sort of makes all all of this so complicated.
5: (laughs) I find women beautiful, absolutely gorgeous, but I'm not attracted to women sexually.
4: And when you do modeling assignments, do you just get hired straight out as a female model or? I used
5: to. I don't anymore because of uh, the outing of the transgender models now. Um, It's very prominent in the mainstream now with uh, Leah T, with Andre Pazhevic, Andreja now, I'm sorry, Pazhevic. And, uh, you know, I've been – before when I first started, I, they told me not to tell people, mm. but they knew who were hiring, but they would just hire me and shoot me. But now it's, it's, it's very big. I was in Vogue. I was in Vanity Fair. I was in uh, a Barney's campaign, which uh, featured 17 transgendered models. So it's out there now, and it's, it's a good thing in the fashion industry to be
4: transgender now. Um, I am going to do a very poor job of articulating kind of some of the opposition points here because the more I think of this, the more I think I sort of agree with Dr. Joe Winkie and it, that, that so much of this seems socially constructed or at least um, socially, um, um, socially. Disappearable, anyway. I mean, that we could we, we could get rid of it as easily as keep it. But we do have a call coming in here from... Did you want to say something first, sir?
1: Well, I wanted to say, following up on that, one thing I learned in my book, talking to Aiden Key that I just mentioned before, he works out of Children's Hospital in Seattle, mm-hmm. right? There are some children who identify as transgender, he says, right after they can speak. Mm-hmm. More typically, he works with kids who are five or six years old. Now, this is very, very new. These are parents who go to him and to others for support, he finds when these little kids get support they're perfectly fine so you know a, a, a biological male identifying as a female at age 5 there's no just you know dysphoria or gender identity disorder they're perfectly fine then when they go to school all hell breaks loose mm-hmm.
4: all right now let's grab a call here from Cheryl in Branford hi Cheryl you're on the air hi how are you good uh, my
0: my issue is you know i i have a problem and a lot of people I know have a problem with when a transgender person makes these blanket statements about, you know, when I go to the airport, you know, I feel like a woman, I am a woman, and they associate me with a man. You know, the thing is, is that I know that this is a very, very difficult thing for some people to swallow. but there are rules, and the rule is that if I'm a woman, I'm a woman, and if I'm a man, I'm a man. And if I'm a dog, I'm a dog, and if I'm a cat, I'm a
4: cat. But where does that where does that rule come from? That
0: whole gender reassignment thing is there for a reason. I mean, especially now with all of the nonsense we have at the airports with terrorists, we don't we don't know who anybody is. Let alone now we we don't know who anybody is if it's a male or. A
4: All right, so that that certainly that certainly counts as an opposition call. I just want to go back to something you said before at the beginning, though, um, Cheryl, Cheryl. 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 Would you mind if I just asked you a question, or are you just going to lecture? It's not lecture. It's just my God. I know, but I wanted to ask you a question about something that you said. Are you able to answer a question about something that you said? Yes, I am. You said there are rules. Where do those rules come from? Oh
0: my God. Um. Uh, let's see. We have a boys' girl boys' room, a boys' bathroom, and a girls' bathroom. So
4: the rules are, but but that's a, that's not where the rules come from. They're not made in the bathroom, are they?
0: No. The thing is, though if you if you want to be a, so if you want to be identified as a female, hmm. then get.
4: Surgery. Well, no, the, okay, okay. This is an interesting point. This is a, a great place to stop, and I'm going to um, put Cheryl on hold for a second here. And so, and I'm. I think we should go to Giselle here on, on, for a second on this too, because uh, there's a couple of interesting things that have come up. One of them is the bathroom, which I forgot to bring up to be, I The bathroom almost comes up, but anyway. But there's also this kind of thing, and I'm sure you've heard. What she's saying right now is if you want to be a woman, then you have to have the lower surgery. Uh, right. I mean, that's that's like a thing that people I think say. that
5: is one of the most ridiculous statements I've ever heard, because
4: are you, are you. All right, uh, Cheryl, we are going to let because talk.
5: being transgender does not necessarily mean that you have to go underneath a knife to be something that you are. Why do you need to go underneath a knife for surgery to be something that you are internally? That just doesn't make any sense. A s- cosmetic surgery or, 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 or a re- sexually reassignment surgery is going to change who you are. It is not. You are who you are for who you are inside. And the whole world is not black and white. It's not only about women and men. This whole world has a range of different types of people, and that is quite evident just with nature itself. There are people that are born with two sexes. So what do we do with tr- a transgender women that look extremely feminine— and cannot use the uh, the women's bathroom. I'm going to use the, males, uh, the male bathroom. Believe me, I did that before. And it caused a scene and a scandal. And it was not a very pretty sight. And it was actually very dangerous for me. Yeah. These people try to use the fact that these people could be predators, that these people could be terrorists. That
4: is not an excuse. No, I don't think that is either. And I don't think you should be using the men's bathroom either. I, that would cause a lot of trouble. Um, right. So, but, you know, Joe... What she's talking about is something that I've heard before, and it's almost kind of a price of admission argument, right? If you want to be admitted to women, to the race of women from the race of men, there's a price of of admission, and part of that price of admission is sexual reassignment surgery, is the so-called lower surgery. Okay, look, here's the
1: problem. The two buckets of male and female ignore facts. Gender identity can be explained very simply in, in, in the following way. You you have biological gender and you're assigned that based on, to uh, the caller's point, whether you have a penis or a vagina. Most people's gender identity is aligned with their biological gender. But it is a fact that it is not the case with some people. Now, here's what also is not very well known. And I've met now many, many transgender women and transgender men. With respect to transgender women, very few transgender women – I don't know what the percentage is. Let's say it's, it's 15% have had gender reassignment surgery. To, to, to say in a totalitarian way, if you want to identify as a woman, you better cut your penis off is, is outrageous. Uh, that is a very personal decision. And the fact that most people don't recognize is that most transgender women do not feel compelled to do that, do not want to do that.
4: Um, I want to go back to the bathroom and by the way Giselle when I said I don't think you should be in the men's room it isn't because you're not well it isn't because I don't think you're welcome here in the men's room it's just that I think it would be dangerous I mean you look like a beautiful woman and not all men are all that nice in the men's room but you know when this comes up I'm, I'm not even asking this as a question, really, exactly, but this comes up all the time. And I always wonder what do people do in the bathroom that they, I mean, I go to the men's room. I, I don't really have a sexual experience there. I don't look at other men's penises. I don't, I mean, <laughs> I, I it just, when I'm in the bathroom, I'm there to do one of two possible things, right. and neither one of them involves my sexual identity very much. You know, and and I'm just always fascinated. I mean, do you understand wh- why do people get so overwrought about the bathroom?
5: Well, I think that a lot of people get bent out of shape because they believe that um, they're predators. I think they believe that trans some transgender people could be predators, or they could just be going. I think that's the only excuse that I can really think about that somebody would really have an issue with. A transgender person using the using the bathroom, but I think that's ridiculous. That's like saying all transgender people are predators. That's like to me, that's not an argument. I've tried. I've used the bathroom before, the boys' bathroom, and as I said it was not a pretty sight. Like, all the men in there went crazy. It was, like, almost (laughs) like I was being sexually harassed by everybody.
4: Yeah, no, that's it. just doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, All right, so we're going to take a quick break here. I I, I do want to, one of the focuses of our show today, and we're going to transition towards it now, is how this works out in other cultures. I mean, really, you know, we're not the only culture uh, to experience this, and other cultures have very interesting ways of dealing with it. Are you a Right, right. We're back. Uh, I want to give a special shout out to Kelsey Bissell, who's an intern here and who produced this show uh, and has lined up these fascinating guests. Has done a great job uh, making this real. So uh, joining us now, we've been talking to Giselle Alicia, sometimes known as Giselle Extravaganza, and to Dr. Joe Wenke, and now in, um, I guess in Wisconsin, probably. Yes, by, via Wisconsin Public Radio. We're talking to Dr. Stephanie Budge also. Uh, she's a visited, prof- visiting professor at the University of Wisconsin uh, at Madison and a licensed psychologist. She studies this stuff, and I'm sure she's been listening listening with great interest to the conversation that's unfolded so far. By the way, am I correct, Stephanie Budge? Are you, have you been listening yes. with great interest?
6: Yes, <laughs> with great interest.
4: So can we shift this onto on kind of slightly more multicultural ground here? This is something that you've looked at, right? As we look across the globe, there are, are all kinds of different traditions. Although we could very easily, I mean, I've alluded to this already, we could very easily start right here in North America, among North American Native Americans, right? Where there, are, there just is this notion, tribe to tribe, of third gender.
6: That's correct. In um, North America and a lot of the indigenous cultures, they actually call it two spirit. Right. And of course, the language depends on which tribe you're talking to. But the concept of two spirit um, is pretty much the same, which is that you can embody more than one gender identity. And in fact, um, in a lot of Native American cultures, it's something that's considered uh, a positive thing and a good thing, um, which is Usually in the United States, there tends to be some stigma related to people who don't identify strictly as male or female.
4: Uh, What I had also read was that um, that this sort of lump term, this... um uh, European term, Berdache, was applied to, to all of these different manifestations of this in all of these different tribes, mainly because European settlers didn't want to learn all the different names from all the tribes. Uh, and the, the name Two-Spirit really is a relatively recent coinage, right? You know, maybe even the latter part of the last century uh, that Two-Spirit came along to replace this highly inaccurate French term. Um, as you look at non-Western cultures, Stephanie, what do you find? Is the, is the East different from the West?
6: Yes, and it, it's very different, and it's actually even different within Western and non-Western cultures. Um, and what you'll find is that um, in, for example, on the Pacific Islands, um, in Samoa, for example, they have a, a culture of the fafafine there, um, which is considered a third gender of people, and they're usually people who are assigned a male sex at birth, but who can um, identify as female, can dress femininely, and kind of have a feminine role within their family. Um, and this is pretty true amongst the Pacific Islands. There are different names um, that are used within the different cultures, uh, but it's typically these these identities are pretty much preserved for individuals who were assigned a male sex at birth but you know want to present more femininely or identify more femininely and that's pretty true across most cultures so in India and in Bangladesh and Pakistan you have the hijra um, then also in Thailand you have the Kathui or we we know them a little bit more um, in lay terms as lady boys so you know depending on where you are in different parts of the world you'll heal- hear different terminologies but pretty much you You'll hear um, mostly people talking about uh, people who were assigned male at birth. Um, you don't really have a lot of information about uh, people who are you know, raised as girls and who then you know, identify as, as men later on.
4: Yeah, the the Hijra in India might be the largest community uh, of third-gender people. I mean, one estimate is between 5 and 6 million uh, people mm-hmm. in, in India are Hijra. Some of that is just because there's a lot of people in India. Um, so what one way of looking at this or talking about it is that, um, and I'd be interested to hear what Joe Winkie has to say about this too, but I'll start with you, Stephanie, is, you know, you sort of look at how society functions. And a society can function in, in a situation like this in two different ways. You can, and now I'm sort of venturing into sort of sociology slash anthropology, you can have a, a structure that defines normality in terms of deviance, right? That it, it, that certain things are deviant, and that's how we understand what the norm is. And that's kind of a, a pretty Western model. I mean, that's sort of a European slash. North American model. And, and the other thing that you can do is you can create categories that really do reflect the diversity of, of people so that rather than constantly having conflict and having to try to figure out what to do about this particular person, you actually already have a name for this kind of person and maybe even an understanding of how that person is going to fit into any kind of social context. I don't, is, Do I sound like I'm making any sense at all?
6: Yes. And, and I think that at least what I'll add to that is that y- y- even though we have terms, especially in a lot of the non-Western cultures that I've been talking about, that there are, term, that there are terms for uh, folks who maybe we would call trans or transgender here in the United States, um, that in a lot of these cultures, these groups of people, you're talking about, you know, making sure that there are maybe identity categories and there are deviations, but that a lot of these groups of folks are still um, not considered to be um, normal. I'm 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 using air quotes, but you can't see me because I'm on the radio. But mm-hmm. they're you know, the, but that the, the hijra, for example, are still considered uh, lesser than. Um, and the same thing with the Kathui in in Thailand. That there are specific occupations that um, that they're supposed to have, um, and it, it's still. Seems like there's a class-based system um, and some stigma that that are related to these categories. There are a couple of cultures where that's not the case, but um, in general, that seems to be true uh, across the board.
4: We've got some people still calling in. And I want to, by the way, um, Joe Winkie, go back to you on Mm -hmm. the uh, case of the uh, Hawaiian person who I know you've interviewed. But before we do that, let's just grab a few calls here just so people don't feel neglected. Here's Max in Hartford. Hi, Max. Hi, how are you doing, Colin? Just fine. So
7: my question uh, kind of ties into the society aspect, but just in general, I have trouble understanding. Uh, I mean, I think anybody should be able to identify as any gender they want, but my whole issue is what are genders in general? Like, who defines what it means to be a male or a female? Um, So I just kind of, you know, I, I know Giselle had spoke about when she was younger. She put on makeup and high heels and she identified as female. But, you know, isn't that a social construct of our society? So, you know, these Native American cultures, when they have somebody who identifies as a gender, you know, is, is it male and female as we look at it? Or is it something entirely different?
4: Yeah. Um, well, that's a that's sort of a big question with a lot of different parts to it. Um, does anybody want to break off a Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: uh, I think it is a very complicated question. If I just go to uh, Hina Wankalu, the Hawaiian uh, transgender person who's in my book, she presents as a woman but defines herself by using the term mahu, which, if I'm not mistaken, was originally a pejorative term used to describe transvestites in Hawaii. But she now is reclaiming that term much in the way that the word queer is reclaimed to say that she feels that she sort of floats between the male and the female binary. Now, when we're talking about who defines all of this stuff, well, the world defines it. It gets defined in your family and then in the school and the neighborhood, and uh, it's very restrictive. What saved her was that part of Hawaiian culture uh, put a great deal of emphasis on being responsible and taking care of your own family, and she was the caretaker in her family. So nobody ever questioned her in her family, but when she got to school, harassed and bullied.
4: Um, Yeah, so it it seems as though what you're saying is that every time you enter a structure, the structure needs some kind of word for what you are.
1: Exactly. And uh, it's an even more profound topic. That's why I was delighted to talk to Andrew Solomon, who wrote Far From the Tree, National Book Award winner. He looks at a lot of different categories of difference, right, many of which are disorder. So you're deaf, you're a dwarf, you're schizophrenic. Uh, You're transgender, which is not a disorder. And what he finds, and he's talking to these people and their families, is that difference-making elements are what define us, right? So there is a deaf culture, and deaf people a lot of times don't want cochlear transplants because they it will remove their deafness, it will eliminate their identity. So this is a very complicated thing, and it's really it's revealing too. Where do you come down on the subject of difference? Do you find it threatening, or do you celebrate diversity?
4: Giselle, uh, one thing that we didn't say, you grew up, if I'm correct, in Harlem uh, in what I assume was a predominantly African-American culture. So that's different from how the government or any bureaucracy or school system defines you. How did that particular culture deal with who you are, who you wanted to be?
5: Well, I was actually in a part of Harlem, Harlem, uh, which there was a lot of Latin people Mm -hmm. uh, growing up. I was harassed every single day Growing up, it was very difficult. So the Latin and black culture, from my experience growing up in Harlem, was very, very harsh and was not supportive. And so I was harassed. A lot of my friends that are, happen to be Latin and black um, were harassed throughout their whole lives in their neighborhoods, too. So that culture is not very um, kind to uh, you know people that are different.
4: Stephanie, one thing we also haven't talked about is sort of what, what the sort of st- the official state of psychology is on all this. You know, not only what the DSM says uh, about any of this, but, but sort of even t- to whatever extent psychology is able to speak institutionally in some other way. Are, is this, I mean, certainly 10, 20 years ago, a lot of this would have been considered some kind of disorder. Is it still considered some kind of disorder?
6: It is, and that's so. It's considered a disorder in both the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the DSM. That's the the manual that we use as psychologists and psychiatrists to diagnose. But also the International Diagnostic System still considers it a, a mental disorder. So in the DSM, it's called um, gender dysphoria. So they took the word disorder out of the newest version, but it's still considered a disorder if you read the criteria that are included in it. Uh, it's no, you are no longer considered to have the mental disorder once you have. Transition. So you can specify post transition. There is some controversy of um, within the field of psychology and also in medicine about what transition means, or you know, can you be you know post some type of identity? Um, And there's a lot of controversy within the field about including it, continuing to include it as a diagnosis. I'm on the end as a psychologist and somebody who works with transgender clients. um, I'm on the spectrum of not. Of it not being a disorder, but that's how it's classified currently.
4: Although I would assume that it does help people get certain services. Um, that I mean, counseling yeah. services, or I mean, would it increase your eligibility for certain things that might be desirable?
6: Yes. And so this is where it's complicated, is that there was some debate about whether or not they should include it in the new version of the DSM. Um, The reason why it was kept in ultimately is because you need to have some type of diagnosis in order to get um, medically necessary treatment. So if you want to get any type of hormone replacement therapy or any type of gender reassignment surgery, you have to have some type of diagnosis right now in the system the way that it currently is to be able to get that. So part of the debate was that there needed to be some type of diagnosis in order for trans folks to get medically necessary treatment. I mean personally I think that we just haven't gotten far enough in terms of thinking creatively about how to get medically necessary treatment without something you know without it being a mental disorder um, but we're not that far yet.
4: Yeah. All right we got some kind of record for phone calls here. I do want to grab it and get a few calls on the air here. A lot of people want to call up and talk about this Here's uh, Amy in West Hartford. Hi Amy
7: Hi, I was um, calling in because I have a child who is eight years old, he's a boy, and his interests have always been what people classify as female, his favorite color was always pink. And since he was in preschool, up till this day now, he still tells me this regularly on the playground, you know, kids don't, kids ask him, they'll say to him, are you a boy or a girl? Because, you know, you're always wearing pink. And he'll always say, well... I'm a boy, but I like pink. And I feel like, well, it causes him a lot of anxiety, obviously. But I also feel like, um, you know, like he's very it makes him very confused. And that is interesting because I think that wrapped into the question of gender assignment is also a lot of social constructs of what gender means. And so I feel like even at eight, he's struggling because people call him girl sometimes. i will say, oh, you can tell them you're a boy. And I'll say, no, I'm happy they called me a girl and so it's it's kind of interesting because they feel like we, we box our kids in, and only when they're older they get a chance you know to kind of feel like a freedom of gender and I wish that there was more work done to try to open that up a, at a younger age for kids
4: Amy, is it just the color of pink, or does he identify female in other ways?
7: well, when he was with all his favorite things were princesses
4: mm-hmm.
7: and um in the house till where um like, like nightgowns. And he really likes doing that. Um, and when he was again, for his birthday party, when he turned four, he wanted a princess party and we went to the place, they had all the costumes out and he chose the most, um, beautiful, elegant bell costume that he could choose. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but I feel like what's happened with him at least is, and it's interesting is that I feel like he feels the social, um, pressure. And it started at age four, um, You know, so that what we see is that although at home he'll ask me to buy him, like, a nightgown, and I'm very accepting, obviously, of who he is. So I'm fine with that, but I don't think he would ever wear that out. But then we were at Disneyland this year, and he commented on all the, the littler boys who were in princess costumes and how cool that was.
4: Okay. You know what? We're going to take a break here, and maybe um, some of our guests can react to this a little bit, so stay listening. I, I have to say, before, before you play any music, though, I, I just there's a great song, Amy, that you might even want to track down. It's by Dar Williams. I should have thought of it for today's show. It's called When I Was a Boy. You know the song song I'm talking about, Wolfie? Dar Williams sings about how when she was little, she could be a boy, and that she could be Peter Pan, she could be all these things. And in the song, she meets a man who begins to talk to her about when he was a girl, uh, that when he was young, he was allowed to be a girl in certain ways. And it's a a song that will bring you to tears. It kind of is about the kind of shaping that you're describing. We'll uh, take a little break. We'll come back. We'll talk more to our guests, and we'll react to Amy's phone call had got it wrong I was a prisoner of gender
5: the model had a flaw return to send a senorita
2: not senor Today's show was produced by our intern Kelsey Bissell with Betsy Kaplan and me Kyone Wolf Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Collin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bruce Jenner for show pages, articles, and recipes from the Faith Middleton Show staff for male ladyfingers, visit our website, wnpr.org. And now, back to Colin.
4: We're talking about the kind of the notion of third gender. Uh, with us is Dr. Joe Winkie. Uh, his uh, latest book uh, is The Human Agenda, Conversations About Sexual Orientation uh, and Gender Identity. Um, Giselle Alessia, I hope I did that right, uh, is with us, uh, a transgender fashion model who's also acted in movies, uh, also performs as Giselle Extravaganza. And joining us from Wisconsin is Dr. Stephanie Budge, uh, a professor at the University of Madison, uh, Wisconsin at Madison, and a licensed psychologist doing a lot of research into this field. Uh, Joe Winkie, I know that you wanted to follow up on something.
1: Yeah. Gender identity disorder is a totally made-up diagnosis. It's an embarrassment to the medical community. They used to pathologize gay people. They've been pathologizing transgender people for about 40 years. Dr. Caris Masarella, transgender emergency physician who's in my book, says, you know something, Tra- being transgender is not biologically hazardous. It doesn't raise your cholesterol or your blood pressure. You can't find it under a microscope. And the term dysphoria is just a euphemism for disorder. So being different is not a disorder, and we need to expand the way that we think to account for the fact that all of these transgender people are walking the earth, okay? It's that simple.
4: Um, uh, Stephanie Budge, I was wondering whether you wanted to react to Amy's call as we headed into the break mm-hmm. uh, about uh, her son.
6: Yeah, you know, I I think it's difficult because it's, it sounds like her son really loves um – Nightgowns and pink, and you know these are all things we've been talking about—gender being socially constructed on this show—and it's to me, it's it's heartbreaking that a kid can't just like the things that they like um, because they're, you know, that it's it's girl things, and I think it's especially hard on um, on. Kids who are who are boys or who are being socialized as boys, if they like girl things, because that makes them considered weak, they get teased for it. Um, the it's not quite the same um, in the other direction. Um, but you know, I, I guess in terms of reactions, there there's not much to say other than trying to help find some support for this family. Uh, you know, the teasing can be really hard on kids, and so usually, if you do have a kid who goes into therapy or needs some support, it's not because they like pink or because they want to wear nightgowns because they need support from the bullying or from the teasing that they're getting.
4: Giselle, uh, imagine you're sitting down on a park bench with that kid. What would you say? little advice from somebody who's been on a journey already.
5: You know what? I would have to tell that child to find children like themselves, find people that are just like them, and to be around people that love them and support them and not that put them down and, and and try to hurt them because it's a very difficult situation to be... You know, born in a society where if you're a boy, you're supposed to be blue and if you're a girl, you're supposed to be pink, and there's nothing there's no in between. So I think that's very difficult for children that are in between because um it exists and it's a fact and it's here. And I, I'm very happy that this whole transgender conversation is happening all over the country because of the whole uh Bruce Jenner interview. I think that has pushed these conversations more. I think this country is learning about transsexuality in in, uh, a new way because I don't think a lot of people know anything about uh, transsexualism.
4: Um, I'm going to grab a call here from Charlie. I just want to say just the math says I won't be able to get to a lot of your phone calls. If you have things you want to say do feel free to email Colin, C-O-L-I-N at WNPR.org and we'll continue this conversation on our website at WNPR.org as well. Charlie in North Haven. Hi Charlie. Hi,
8: thank you very much. Um, I have a transgendered sibling who transgendered also through the operation from male to female. And my issue is uh, this person is an electrical engineer in a male-dominated field and very interested in things like home plumbing, does her own roofing, wiring, carrying heavy lumber. And, you know, when I go to, like, Home Depot, knows more than the people there about all this stuff. She's wearing her heels and her short skirt and all that stuff, and... I just feel very uncomfortable in this situation, and I wonder, is it my problem, or is it society? or If this person were like a literature teacher at a university, it would be like so much easier or something. Can can
4: you explain your discomfort a little bit more, Charlie? In other words, are you uncomfortable because you feel as though your sibling is being judged a certain way at that moment, uh, that there are disparaging looks flashed in your sibling's door? I mean, what makes you uncomfortable?
8: I feel uncomfortable because... I don't know. maybe because i I see her in her high heels and her short skirt and hair she's carrying heavy lumber, and she's really strong, and she's kneeling down in this short skirt, putting plumbing in place. And I just I can't seem to get my mind to wrap around that this is a woman now who's doing these very typically male dominated things.
4: She she sounds like everything we could possibly want, at least in terms of exploding some of the stereotypes we were just talking about. Go ahead, Joe.
1: Exactly. You know, uh, she's just doing her thing and being herself, and yet everybody is judging. You know, I'm experiencing this too, and as I mentioned, Bruce Jenner. Gender identity evolves, right? And uh, so I'm becoming more and more feminine. I'm wearing pink fingernail polish. I'm constantly getting negative looks everywhere I go, and it makes everybody around me feel uncomfortable i was at my son's birthday party giselle was there and my other son was upset that everybody's staring at me and it 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 goes on i mean one of the most disruptive things apparently is putting some pink color on your nails how absurd is that
4: Stephanie, you know, I mean, I, I, I hate to end the program talking about the problems. So maybe we could begin talking a little bit about solutions. Our, our, as you look at this as a clinician, as somebody studying these issues, uh, and I know that you work in an area called positive psychology, which I find promising. Yeah. So, so tell us what you see on the horizon.
6: Well, so um, along with a, a team of amazing um, researchers, I've been following folks around the country um, to talk to them, to talk to trans individuals about their positive experiences. Um, and part of this has been a reaction to hearing all about negativity. And there, there are some things that trans folks need to be aware of in terms of their safety and, um, and you know, just that they experience a lot of negativity in their daily lives. However, I think that there is a narrative that we aren't hearing, which is that there are a lot of positive things that come out of identifying as trans or gender nonconforming, as gender queer. We haven't really talked a lot about genderqueer individuals on this radio station today. But um, I interviewed a whole bunch of individuals, 66 people, um, about their positive experiences. And what we found was that overwhelmingly, every person we talked to, every trans person we talked to said that there was positivity related to their gender identity process. Um, and the whole piece of this is is that whenever I have people come into my office to come into therapy, especially parents um, and family members, they say, I'm worried that my family member is going to have a terrible life. Um, And I really wanted to flip that on its head because that's not what I was seeing as a therapist. I mean, I was seeing some hardship and some difficulty that people were working through, but I saw a lot of happiness and a lot of authenticity and pride um, in their process. And I think you can hear about people talking about that too in popular culture and in the media that you see that people just seem to have a lot of relief um, from the process. And I can talk about some of our results if that would be useful. Uh, but I really just wanted to say that it seems to be a piece of the story that people aren't talking
4: about. You know, Giselle, uh, we are running out of time here, but one other place kind of on the front lines on the trenches that change may happen. And this must be happening with you, uh, straight cisgendered guys who are very unfamiliar with the transgendered experience but who find themselves attracted to you how does that play out
5: well that actually happens uh, a lot of times, to me. Um, but the thing about me is that I'm ex- I'm I'm extremely honest with people that I meet. I always let them know that I'm transgender, and I have met a lot of guys I did not know. We have a conversation. Uh, you know, they 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 would get me a drink, or you know, we would it, just in a social environment just make conversation. But if they want to take it a step further, I don't do that mm. before letting them know the truth. Or I didn't used to do that. Because I think it's very important to be safe and to be honest with people. That's the thing. I'm not trying to be something that I'm not. I'm just trying to be who I am and what I am. And I am a different being. I'm not male and I'm not female. I'm transgender. And I let people know that all the time.
4: Do you think their attitudes change as a result when when they learn that you're transgender? I mean, do you think it's possible that their attitudes towards transgenderism transform positively? Now I see this human being whom I I like.
5: Yes, I've had many positive reactions. Actually, a lot of men, I'm not going to say men are evil because they're not. A lot of men were actually very nice and supportive.
4: All right, we are going to have to stop it there. I'm sorry to ask ask you a question and then give you 10 seconds to answer. There's like 27 (laughs) calls. So much happened here today. Kelsey Bissell, what a great show. And uh, we'll have to tackle this subject again pretty soon because there's a lot of stuff we didn't cover. All right. Thank you.
2: Okay, got it. Gender is who you go to bed as and sexuality is who you go to bed with and bronies are men, people who they, uh, I think we have some more shows to do on this stuff.